when we see the true grace of the Savior who will come to the most despicable man in Capernaum and say, follow me, I'll change you. When we see that grace, that is scandalous. And it scandalized those who rested upon their own righteousness. Jesus said, I came to call sinners. What does Jesus mean when he says, I came to call sinners? Does he mean that all those people that he ate dinner with at the home of the tax collector, that all of them are followers of Jesus now? We're told many of them were, because that's what Mark says. Many of them were followers of Jesus. But when Jesus says, I came to call sinners, what he doesn't mean is, I'm going to this dinner at Levi's house because all of them have been called to be my followers. Do you remember, this is almost exactly a year ago, but back when we were in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, and we were talking about that phrase that you may know the hope of your calling, the hope to which you were called. And if you remember, it was March of 2022. If you remember, we'd spent a great deal of time talking about the call of God. And we spent a lot of time looking through the scriptures to see that the scriptures explicitly tell us that there are two calls of God. There is the one call of God that's the generic, general call that God sends to all people. And that call is repent, turn from your sin, believe and be saved. And all who come to me, none will be cast out. Come unto me and drink from the living waters. Come and buy wine and food without payment. All who come will have living waters. Remember that? That's the general call given to all people. Repent, believe, and turn, and you will be saved. But we said that that call is rejected. But there is a second call. And we talked about that as more like a summons from a sovereign, a sovereign king who summons his people to come into his presence. You remember that? And that's the call that comes to the heart of the chosen. It comes to the heart of God's people. And as Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And that's the call of the master saying, you are mine, come to me. So Jesus sits and reclines with a room full of people all of which he calls to follow him, but only some of which does he summon to be his followers. So if you want to go back and listen to that again, we did a great deal of work in the scriptures to see how it is that the scriptures clearly show that. And so I would recommend that you do that if you're interested in that. But Jesus is here to say, I am here to call all people to follow me. I'm here to call all of these sinners, all these tax collectors to follow me. But as Jesus himself will say, many were called, few were chosen. So this call is given to them to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the, the sinners, which brings up an interesting question for us. So the, the Levi, remember Levi, who was sitting in this tax, tax collector booth, Jesus says, follow me, and he follows. The summons is placed upon Levi's heart. Follow me. 
Levi hears the voice of his master and Levi obeys the voice of his master and he gets up and he follows. So the question that we would ask ourselves is a question that's often, we often sort of use this language in the church. And that's this question. Does Jesus accept us the way we are? Did Jesus accept Levi the way he was? Jesus calls these tax collectors to follow him. If they choose to follow him, if they obey his voice, if they hear his voice and follow, does Jesus accept them the way they are? He does not. God does not accept us the way we are. God calls us the way we are. But for him to accept us, he must change us. He must give us a new heart. That's why Jesus had to die. Because God calls us just as we are. Just as Levi sat in that tax collector, just as he was, Jesus would say to him, just like you are, I'm calling to you. But for you to be mine, I have to change you. I have to give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I've got to take from you that heart of stone and I've got to give you that new heart. I've got to give you that new birth that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. You must be born again, Nicodemus. So he calls as they are, but if they come, if they hear his voice, they will be changed. And so he says to them, when Jesus heard this, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, it's at this point in the story that what I want to ask you all to do is something that perhaps you've never tried to do, but let's try to do this right now. And it may not be easy. Let's try to empathize with the Pharisees. You may have never tried to empathize with the Pharisee. You may have never tried to think like a Pharisee, but it'll be helpful if we try to put ourselves in the position of these Pharisees who have witnessed Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. They've witnessed Jesus calling the most hated man in society, the most immoral man in society. And now they're struggling with this. And they ask him, why, are you, why is your master doing this? And the answer they're given is, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinner. So the quandary that Jesus forces them into, the quagmire, the situation in their minds that Jesus forces them into, let's think about this for just a minute. Because the Pharisees, they have witnessed two things that are at collision with one another. They have witnessed Jesus saying things that no one else has ever said. They've witnessed Jesus doing things that no one can do unless he is sent from God. Remember the words of Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, nobody can do these things that you're doing unless they're sent from God. So the Pharisees have seen very clearly and they believe their theology tells them nobody can do these things and nobody can say these things unless they are sent from God. But then on the other hand, they've also witnessed Jesus doing things that their scriptures have told them over and over are sinful. Namely, the mixing together with sinful people. That's what the scriptures have taught them. 
the very first verse of the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, from that, we could jump to a myriad of Old Testament scriptures that tell us essentially the same thing, and that's that God told his people to separate themselves from sinners. That's what was behind the whole story of of the Moabite women that they had intermarried and and Ezra makes them separate. That's the whole story behind the, the Passover. That's what the Passover was about. The leaven, get the leaven out of the house. And a whole host of other scriptures. One place in scripture where this really becomes prominent is in the prophet Haggai. Haggai chapter two, this is in your handout, verses 13 and 14. Haggai is sort of having this little discussion about this very topic. And his question is, if you have an unclean thing and a clean thing, an unholy thing and a holy thing, and the the two of them come together and they come into contact, does the unholy thing become holy by the holy thing? Or is it the other way around? Does the holy thing become corrupted by the unholy thing? Here's what Haggai says. Well, he says, we won't read that whole passage, but here's what he says. No, the unholy thing isn't made holy by coming in contact with something clean. It's the other way around. That's what the Jew was taught. And so now here's what the Pharisees are wrestling with. Can you see what they're wrestling with? They're wrestling with two things that don't seem to agree in their mind. One is this man who speaks like he's from God. And all of his words are backed up with miracles from God. On the other hand, at every turn, he seems to be violating what the scriptures have said, not just once, not just twice, but dozens and dozens and dozens of times over. So they're not sure what to make of him. That's why they're asking him these questions. And so on the one hand, the miracles and and the words he's speaking seem to say, accept this man as someone from God. But on the other hand, these actions that he's doing, this this mingling with unholy people seem to say to him, no, reject this man. So they're going to take the route of rejection. But you see what they're wrestling with. And this is the whole point of the whole section. That's why we read the whole text together. Because that's the point of this entire section. The point of the whole section is this. Everything has changed now. Everything is different now. The new wine is here. The new patch is here. And it doesn't fit on the old garment. The new wine doesn't fit the old wineskins. The Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Everything is different now. Because the Son of Man is here now. That's the whole point of the extended section. That you, Pharisees, you've got to now radically rethink how you have been taught to understand the law. Because their understanding of the law, or I should say their misunderstanding of the law, is what has created this unsolvable problem for them. Because their understanding of the law is not as the law should have been understood for the unregenerate person, which they are. So what is the purpose of the law? The law has multiple purposes, but the two, I would call the two main 
dual purposes of the law, the law of God is what I mean, would, would, I would classify it as the purpose of the law for the unregenerate person and the purpose of the law for the regenerate person. So the law for the unregenerate person, the unconverted person, the lost person, what is the purpose of the law for the lost person? The purpose of the law for the lost person is to break them of their sinful pride and drive them to the cross to show them that there is no way that you can please God in your sinful condition. You cannot of yourself be perfect. And so that's the purpose of the law is to take the sinner and drive them to the grace of God, drive them to the mercy of God to say, this is a standard you cannot meet. Now, once a person becomes regenerate, then the law sort of takes on another purpose. The law still serves the same purpose to guard against pride, to constantly say to us, you you will never of yourself meet God's standard. And so you must daily fall at the feet of the God of grace. But the law takes on an additional purpose for the converted person. And that's the purpose of being a guide, a director, so to speak, to take our love for God, our our appreciation, our gratitude, and to give it direction, to give it focus. That's what the law does for the regenerate person. The regenerate person who now has love for God needs to be shown how to live that out in such a way that pleases God so that we don't have a whole bunch of people that love Jesus and are just showing their love for Jesus any old way that they want. You know, and having, I don't know, uh, parties of illicit drugs because we love Jesus so much, let's get high for Jesus, you know? And just have this crazy way of thinking, well, let's just show our love for God in this way or that sort of crazy way or whatever way we come up with. God says, no. In your zeal and your love for me, here is how you show it. As Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commands. Now, the Pharisees looked at the law of God and they totally missed the whole first part. The whole first part that was to say to them, this is intended to drive you to the cross. Instead, they looked at the law of God as though they're the regenerate person when they weren't. And their keeping of the law was somehow pleasing of God. So in that misunderstanding of the law, that's why they looked at what Jesus is doing and said, we can't figure this out. This makes no sense to us. Because Jesus is showing them the bridegroom, the new wine, the new patch, the son of man, he is the only one who is not corrupted by coming in contact with sin because he has in and of himself his own holiness, his own light, his own goodness. And if he has his own holiness, then he is not corrupted to come in contact with sinners and tax collectors as you are. It's like, imagine just the the most vile, stinking, rotted pile of garbage you can imagine. 
the smelliest pile of nasty garbage with a ray of sunlight shining onto it. Now, I don't care how stinky that garbage is. That ray of sunlight is not affected by that garbage, is it? Because that ray of sunlight has its own light. It is its own source of goodness, so to speak. And so the bridegroom comes and he says, you, you are not holy in and of yourself. That's what this law was to teach you, that you cannot isolate yourself from sin. No matter how hard you try, you cannot segregate yourself from sin and be holy by so doing that. But everything's different with me because I'm the bridegroom. I'm the new wine. I'm not corrupted to come into contact with sinners because I have my own holiness. My own essence is holy. And so what you should have learned from the law is that you cannot possibly isolate yourself enough and that your only hope is the patch, is the new wine, is the bridegroom. That's your only hope. And they didn't get it. But that's Jesus' whole point. That's why Mark is hammering this point over and over again. Salvation is only found by casting yourself upon the Holy One Himself, the one whose holiness is not corrupted to eat with tax collectors and sinners, the, ones who, the one whose holiness is not corrupted to talk with the Samaritan woman at the well. Because you, in your own efforts, you could go and live on Mars if you want. But if you did, you would still take your heart with you and you would still fail to separate yourself from sin. And so in their misunderstanding, they're saying, we don't understand how this, this man can be so powerful in these signs from God, yet he mixes with the unclean. Doesn't that make him unclean? Haggai would say, it does if your cleanness is not your own. But if your cleanness, if your holiness is yours as it is the bridegroom's, that's the part they missed. Jesus is turning everything on its head. Jesus is upsetting everything about this entire apple cart. So this fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is, of how the law interacts with them, this is what led them to reject the new wine. Look at what Jesus will say in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. He also told this parable. The parable that follows is the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go into the temple courtyard and pray. Remember the whole point of that parable is the Pharisee saying, I'm not like that guy over there. I've separated myself from him. Jesus told this parable, we read in verse 9, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And because they trusted in themselves and in their own righteousness, well, then they've got to protect that righteousness by distancing themselves from the unrighteous or those who were less righteous than themselves. Look finally at Romans chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. Speaking almost directly, it seems, 
of these Pharisees who are critical of Jesus. Here's what Paul says. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness, righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. This is truly a scandal that Jesus brings upon Capernaum. And it is the scandal of grace because true kingdom grace is scandalous. When we see it, when we see true grace lived out like this, when we see the true grace of the Savior who will come to the most despicable man in Capernaum and say, follow me, I'll change you. When we see that grace, that is scandalous. And it scandalized those who rested upon their own righteousness. And in so doing, they saw the frailty. They saw the sham that was their own righteousness. And they lashed out at Jesus. Jesus. 